Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us hear the Word of God, our regular epistolary lesson for this Sunday, as we find it written in the first letter of Peter, the second chapter, especially the 21st verse. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In Christ Jesus, our risen Lord, dear friends, you who are here in God's house this morning, and you also, Christian friends, who are worshiping with us by means of the radio. This morning, the Apostle Peter, the big fisherman from up Galilee way, speaks to us through the Word of God. And the big fisherman says to us that it is Jesus' wish that you and I follow his steps, that you and I walk in his steps, that we follow his example. When we say to ourselves, what does Peter mean by that? How are we to follow Jesus and to walk in his steps? The Apostle Peter hastens to tell us just exactly what he means, for he says that Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. In other words, Peter says, what the Lord wants of you is this, that you will walk in his steps, you will follow his pattern, his example in this matter of suffering, the matter of enduring suffering as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter says, this is what your Lord wants of you. He wants you to walk in his steps in this matter of suffering because you are a Christian, because you believe in Christ as your Savior, because you want to live as Christ wants you to live, because you want to treat your neighbor exactly as Christ wants you to do so. And Peter says, in that matter of suffering, Jesus wants you to walk in his steps to follow his example. And then you and I say, well, how did Jesus endure suffering? What was the way in which he accepted those things that came to him? And again, the big fisherman from Galilee Way examples gives us an example and tells us exactly how that occurred by telling us this, that he, when he was reviled, he reviled not again when he was suffering, he threatened not. Peter says, this is the way your Lord suffered. When they heaped all manner of ridicule on him, he didn't throw it back into their faces. When they reviled him, he didn't revile back and retort in kind. When they looked at him and they insulted him, he didn't turn insult against them. When he suffered, he didn't threaten them with vengeance. He wasn't filled with bitterness. He wasn't filled with resentment. He didn't say, I'll get even with you if it's the last thing that I ever do. And so Peter says, this is what your Lord wants. He wants you to walk in his steps. He wants you to follow his example with regard to this matter of suffering as a Christian. He wants you to endure it patiently, to endure it gently, to endure it without any bitterness, without any resentment, 
without any spirit of revenge. And say, Christian friends, that's quite an order, isn't it? You and I say, do you mean to say that Jesus wants me to walk in his steps, that I am to follow his example with regard to suffering, that when again men inflict all manner of abuse on me because I'm a Christian, that I've got to take it? Do you mean to say that I am to accept it in all patience, that I am to bring it to myself gently, that I am not to blow off the handle, I am not to seek revenge? Do you mean to say that that's what I'm to do? And we say that's a big order. And the reason why it seems like a big order to you and me is this. We say that suffering that comes to a Christian is absolutely uncalled for. It's absolutely undeserved. And right you are, my friends, it is. There is no reason in God's world why a Christian ought to suffer because he's a Christian. There is absolutely no justification for any suffering to come to a Christian because he believes in Jesus Christ. The world has no reason to do so. You are so right. It is absolutely unjustified. It is absolutely undeserved. It is uncalled for. But the fact still remains that when you and I are Christians, there come sufferings to us. And Jesus says, walk in my paths and accept that in patience with no bitterness, no resentment, no spirit of revenge. It is undeserved, but Christ wants you and me to know this, that this enduring of suffering that is absolutely undeserved and enduring it patiently, it ought to be the thrill of your Christian life and mine. It ought to be something that we say, this is what I want to do more than anything else. It ought to fill us with enthusiasm. It ought to be the experience of all experiences in our Christian life. And we may say, how so? Do you mean to say that we ought to thrill when we suffer as a Christian and therefore there should be no bitterness, no resentment, that we ought to gladly walk in the paths of Jesus and follow his example? Exactly, because let's realize in the first place this, that it was by this very kind of suffering that Jesus, our Lord, brought for you and me our redemption from hell and from damnation. Do you realize that that's the kind of suffering Jesus endured? Did Christ deserve what he got, the crown of thorns? Did he deserve to have men spit in his face? Did he deserve to have men to take the reed and crack him in the face? Did he deserve to be scourged? Did he deserve to be nailed to the cross? Did he do something that again would cause men to do that justly? And the apostle Peter, the big fisherman, says he was without sin. Peter knew him as a sinless one who had lived in this world without sin because he was the eternal son of God. Peter said there wasn't even any guile in his mouth. There wasn't any semblance of sin in him, not even to the point that he tried by his words to soft soap anybody. Peter said he was without sin and yet it was undeserved suffering. It was innocent suffering. And the very fact that Christ bore it in patience, that there was no bitterness, there was no resentment, it means that by that very sufferings, Jesus brought escape from eternal death and hell for you and me. We ought to realize that had he been a sinner, had he accepted this with a spirit of revenge, had he said, I'm going to get even with you, there would be no deliverance from eternal hell for the world. But because he suffered innocently and because he did it gladly and willingly, when he went to Calvary's cross, he bore your guilt and he bore mine and he bought the eternal punishment of our sins. And in that sufferings and death, because it was undeserved suffering and death for him who was the eternal son of God, 
there was brought for you and me deliverance from eternal death, soul and body in hell. And therefore, when we walk in his steps with regard to this matter of suffering as Christians, we ought to say, it's the thrill of a lifetime because it's the evidence in your life and mine that your faith and mine is genuine and that in Jesus Christ we do have deliverance from eternal death and eternal damnation. We may say to ourselves, how do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I have been rescued from eternal death and damnation? You and I need to look at our life and let's look here in the acid test. How do we accept suffering because we're a Christian? Do we accept it in patience? Do we accept it gently? Or are you and I bitter? And do we retort with all manner of epithets that are cast at us? And do we have a spirit of revenge? Listen, friend. If there is a spirit of revenge in your heart and mind because we are Christians, there is no resemblance between us and our Lord. If you and I are Christians and our faith is genuine, there ought to be some similarity between Jesus and between you and me. And if all that we have because we suffer as Christians is bitterness, we ought to say to ourselves, my faith is a sham faith. My faith is not a living faith in him. He endured it gladly and it was innocent suffering. But if all that you and I have is a spirit of revenge and I'll get even, we ought to say to ourselves, we are not Christians. We are not saved. We do not belong to him because there is no similarity whatsoever between Christ and us. And that's why today when the big fisherman says, this is what your Lord asks, that you walk in his steps, and that means with regard to your suffering as a Christian, then we ought to say to ourselves, this is the thing that I shall determine to do, that I want to walk in his steps. I want to walk according to the example that he has left. I, as a Christian, I want to endure what comes to me as a Christian, and I want to do it without bitterness and without a sense of resentment and without a spirit of getting even. And when there is that determination, then we're going to realize this, that in the Christian life, listen, this suffering is inseparable with being a child of God. Peter said, for hereunto were you called. How many of us realize that with the Christian life, there comes suffering? How many of us this morning have to say, well, it's been pretty easy so far as a Christian. I don't think that I've suffered anything particularly being a child of God. Haven't you? Haven't you? When again suffering follows being a Christian as the morning follows the night, haven't you ever suffered any ridicule from the world because as a Christian you believe that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God your Lord, that he was born of a virgin, that he arose from the dead? Hasn't the world ever laughed at you for believing that somebody dead could rise again? Hasn't the world ever stood and made fun of you because you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ? Hasn't the world ever made fun of you that you believe that Christ is coming again? Where have you been? Perhaps the world doesn't know that you're a Christian. You can't live a day without paying the price, can you? You mean to say that you've never suffered any ridicule because you live Jesus Christ? You young people, when it comes to a matter of whether you're going to be popular or not, and when you've got to say, I don't live that way because I'm a Christian, you mean to tell me that you've never suffered ridicule and somebody called you a square or whatever you're supposed to be? What kind of a Christian are you and what kind of a Christian am I if we don't pay the price of being a Christian? 
If again there is no ridicule and no laughter and no embarrassment to you and me as a Christian, then pray God, let's take a look at ourselves. We are mighty poor examples of a Christian. The world doesn't know it. Oh, we don't deserve it. You say, where does the world hate a Christian? When you and I say, I'm going to treat my neighbor the way Christ wants me to treat him, and I'll turn the other cheek and the world stands and laughs and said, why, you're a big goof. Talk about being a screwball that you'll turn the other cheek and let the other man take advantage of you. Do you mean to tell me that you and I have never suffered for being a Christian? But why does the world hate a Christian? Do you know why? Let's put it down into our hearts and never forget. Listen, the world hates you and me as a Christian because we stand as living memories to a man of the world that if what you and I believe about Christ is true, that man knows he's damned. Don't forget that. When you and I stand and say, this is Christ who is the only Savior from sin, bear in mind that the man of the world that looks at you and me and says, if what that guy believes is right, then I'm lost. And let me tell you, when the world looks at you and me, and the world knows that he is lost because he doesn't have Christ, he hates you and me with a vengeance. And don't ever forget it. The only way in God's world you can ever keep the world from hating you is to make sure that you don't let the world know that you're a Christian. And listen, you can't compromise it either. There isn't any compromise between heaven and hell, between Christ and the world, between sin and righteousness. It just isn't there. If you and I can say this morning as a Christian, it's been a pretty easy road. For God's sakes, look in the mirror. What kind of a Christian are you? What kind of a Christian am I? That's why the big fisherman up Galilee way says, this is what your Lord wants. He wants you to walk in his steps. He wants you to follow his example with regard to this thing of suffering because you're a Christian. He wants you to bear it even though it is absolutely unjustified. It is absolutely undeserved, but bear it patiently. No bitterness, no resentment, no spirit of revenge. And you and I say, why? Because it's undeserved. But listen, it ought to be the thrill of a lifetime. It ought to be that which inspires you and me beyond everything else to say, this is an honor. It's an honor to bear undeserved suffering gladly for Christ. Why? Because that kind of suffering in the second place was exactly the kind of suffering that Jesus endured, whereby he became the great good shepherd and the overseer of our souls. What made him the good shepherd that he could say, I am the good shepherd? Did he not say, because the good shepherd gave his life for the sheep? How does it come that God raised him from the dead? How does it come that as the good shepherd, he is the one that sits at the right hand of God, the one that rules the world, the one who hurl, holds the world in the very hollow of his hand, the one who rules the world for you and me? How does it come that he's the good shepherd? Isn't it this? Because the suffering that he endured patiently without bitterness, it was undeserved suffering. He didn't deserve the deal he got, did he? And because he didn't, he did it for you and me. In his own self, yes, in his own body, he bare our sins on the tree. And because he is the good shepherd and the overseer of your soul and mine, listen, he is the one that overrules everything for your good and mine. We can't have that conviction that he overrules good for us unless you and I can say, I belong to him and my faith trusts this that because I shall endure what the world sends me with joy and it'll be the thrill of my life, only then can you and I say he is working these things for good. 
Does he, as the great good shepherd, overrule for good? Did you ever see the greatest reversal that has ever taken place in human history? Bear in mind, he died on the tree. Listen, when Peter uses that word tree, he uses it the way they used it in that day. The most horrible death that could come to a man, I mean the most ignominious, the most low type of death that could come was death on the cross. Jesus might have died by being beheaded, but that was honorable. But to die on the cross, anybody that died on the tree was known as one who was accursed of God. You were the lowest type of humanity that could exist. You were really an outcast, and he died in the lowest form of death that could ever come to a man. They nailed him to a tree. And you talk about the overruling providence of God, what happened? They nailed him to a tree. But isn't it strange, that horrible, detestable mode of death? You're sitting in a church that is laid out in the form of a cross. How in the world could something so detestable as a cross become a symbol of joy? How does it come that many of you have lavaliers and necklaces around your neck in the form of a cross? Why? Because that lowly, detestable, ignoble, despicable death was overruled in the providence of God that it's become the symbol of life. And that's why as you sit here this morning, there's the cross on the altar. Some churches have the corpus, the body on it, which calls attention to the death. Some of us have the body off of it, which means that he died, but he arose again. Either one is perfectly all right. Why is it that the cross is a symbol of honor and distinction? Because it was the greatest reversal that has ever taken place in human history. You wouldn't wear an electric chair around your neck. You wouldn't wear a noose around your neck of gallows. You wouldn't wear a gas chamber. But we wear the cross. Why? Because Christ the Good Shepherd has overruled the most ignominious death that ever occurred for the redemption of the world. And listen, it ought to be the thrill of your life and mine when we walk in his steps to say again, I counted an honor and a distinction to suffer for him and to do it without bitterness because then we have the evidence that our faith really trusts him and that he's overruling everything for good. Listen, nothing comes into your life except by his permission. We're talking about the things that we bear because we're a Christian. Bear in mind, this suffering is because we're a child of God. Every man has suffering. This kind of suffering is what you get when you believe in Christ. And the only way you can get rid of it is to get rid of Christ. Then you can lose it. And that's why we call it cross-bearing. But when you and I shall endure it, it's the evidence that Christ has overruled everything. And what comes, we can't do it without bitterness because we can say, the things that he has allowed to come into my life, they are expanding my capacity. My faith grows stronger. That in heaven you and I will be able to enjoy even with a greater spiritual capacity the things which eyes have not seen nor ears heard, neither have entered into the heart of man. That's what it means. That's why the big fisherman up Galilee Way says, Your Lord wants you to walk in his steps. He wants you to walk in his way. He wants you to endure suffering as a Christian the way he did. It ought to be the very joy and the distinction of our lives. And if again we would determine that that's what we're going to do, that whatever comes to us as a Christian, when we love Christ and we want to walk in his way and we want to treat others the way Jesus wants us to treat them, and when the world laughs and it ridicules and it embarrasses us, that we can accept it in all patience and in all calmness, then we ought to pray God for strength to do so and count it a badge of honor and a badge of distinction. I'll never forget when in Rome last summer I stood and walked into the Colosseum Oh, the Colosseum, what's it noted for? Because there is where Christians who suffered because they were Christians, who gave their lives because they believed in Jesus Christ, they went to their death before lions. 
and they were pulled to pieces because there was no bitterness, there was no resentment, no hatred. Oh, the Colosseum, while stands the Colosseum, remember Rome shall stand, and when falls the Colosseum, Rome shall fall, and when Rome falls, the world. But the Colosseum stands as a glorious memorial to the hundreds of thousands of Christians that gave with their lives with no bitterness. Why? Because it was a badge of honor and distinction that they could suffer and die for their Lord. There was no spirit of revenge, no spirit of getting even. On the cross, Jesus, what did he say about his enemies? Father, forgive them. They don't realize the enormity of what they're doing. I stood outside of St. Stephen's Gate in Jerusalem where they brought Stephen, the first martyr, out and they stoned him. Was there any bitterness, any resentment when Stephen was being killed because he was a Christian? What did he do? He prayed. He said, Lord, lay not their sin to their charge. And he was given a vision, wasn't he? He looked up and he saw Jesus Christ stand at the right hand of God. And Again, it meant something. It was the thrill of a lifetime to walk in the way of suffering that God would consider him to be of that value and that God would give him that glorious decision to make to again walk in his way when it meant death. The great fisherman from up Galilee way says to you and me as a Christian, let's walk in his steps, let's walk according to his pattern, let's endure the suffering that comes to us because we're a child of God, and let's endure it with all patience and with all humility, no bitterness, no feeling of getting even. Why? Because, listen, it's that kind of suffering that Jesus endured that also brought this about, that he put this whole thing of judgment into the hands of his heavenly Father. What did he do? There was no bitterness. When again those sufferings came to Jesus, he simply took this whole thing, he put it into the hands of his heavenly Father who judges righteously. Isn't that a marvelous thing? Why? Jesus realized that at the time that was not the time for judgment. This was the time for grace. This was the time when men could still be one. And therefore, this was not the time for judgment. And he had no spirit of revenge. He simply put it into the hands of his heavenly Father who judges all things fairly. But I want to call your attention to this, that he put judgment into the hands of his heavenly Father. Today, what are we reading? We read not long ago where somebody says capital punishment should be outlawed because it's nothing but revenge. Now, we're not arguing capital punishment this morning, but the big point of that is this. Any kind of judgment is revenge, according to that statement. In other words, in Marion County, when Judge Paul Smith in judgment puts again a punishment on a criminal, he is doing it in revenge. When Judge Ed Russo in probate court brings any kind of judgment against an individual, then it's got to be revenge because it's judgment. When Judge Hazen brings judgment against somebody in Marion City, then it's got to be revenge according to what we're being told. Do you see what's implied in that? Don't let anybody kid you. You see, it's like this. If all judgment is revenge, then God surely can never enter, enter judgment with you and me. There can't be any hell because that's judgment and judgment's revenge. God is a God of love. So underneath it all, this is the thing. Men are trying to tell you and me, there isn't any hell. There isn't any punishment for sin. There isn't any judgment because if there's judgment, God has a spirit of revenge. He's getting even. Therefore, again, you see what's... Don't let anybody ever tell you that judgment is revenge. 
if judgment is revenge, then there isn't such a thing as justice. When we say justice is blind because justice is fair, we lie. There is judgment, and judgment is fair, and judgment in the sight of God is not revenge. Don't you let everybody undermine you. That's what the world would like to get you to believe, that God is a jellyfish type of a God of love, and that you and I can spurn him and slap his son Jesus Christ in the face, and you can get by with it. Well, listen, friend, you can't get by with it. When Jesus suffered, he put the whole thing into the hands of God, who judges wisely. There is judgment. But because this is the day of grace, listen, it ought to be the thrill of a lifetime to endure without bitterness, without complaint, without a spirit of revenge, that which comes to you and me because we're a Christian, because we believe in Christ, because we want to live the way he wants us to live. We want to treat others the way he wants us to treat them. We ought to realize this, that it brings us assurance, and it's a thrilling thing to know that if ever we're going to influence anybody for Jesus Christ, it's when you and I suffer for him without bitterness. Listen, let the world look at a man who is willing to bear any kind of persecution for Jesus Christ. And if there's anything that'll wake a man of the world up, it's that. A man of the world looks at a Christian and he says, if that man is willing to suffer for his faith and he's willing to do it without bitterness and no revenge, and he's not threatening to get even, there must be something to what he believes. If that man is willing to die for what he believes about Jesus Christ, if there's anything that will impress a man of the world, it's that. If that doesn't, nothing will, you know it. Is there any thrill in life in knowing that some way, somehow, you and I in walking in the steps of suffering, in walking in the pattern that Jesus has left for us, that if some men are ever going to be influenced for Jesus Christ, it will be by your walking in his paths and mine. Is there any thrill in that? to know that we might save just one soul from eternal perdition when Jesus said it would be better for a man never to have been born than to be lost. How about it? It ought to mean then today that when the big fisherman tells us what Jesus wants, we ought to say to ourselves as we pray for strength that we want to walk in his ways as Christians and we want strength that when we are ridiculed and laughed at and scoffed at, and even if persecution in all its deadliness comes, that we might be fit to endure it. You know, sometimes we talk about the age of persecution. Oh, yes, we, we think back of the first century, but listen, Christian historians have tried to figure out exactly about how many Christians from the first century up until now died for their faith. Do you realize this, that they have figured out that in the last 30 years, think of it, in the last 30 years, more Christians have paid with their lives than have paid with their lives from the time of Christ up until 30 years ago. Do you realize that? So that, listen, I want you to remember that. When you talk about the age of persecution, listen, bud, we're living in the age of persecution. Millions have been put to death behind the Iron Curtain for no other crime than that they believe in Jesus Christ. There are hundreds of thousands in the salt mines who are slaves and will be slaves to the end of their lives behind the Iron Curtain for no other reason than that they believe in Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget it. 
This is the century of persecution. In the last 30 years, may I say it again, more Christians have died and have been persecuted for their faith than have been since the beginning of Jesus Christ and Christianity itself. Don't forget that. And therefore, again, we ought to be ready for it. Oh, it can come. I remember when I was in Rome, I was walking along and I looked up and I saw a sign on the street. And I was taken aback and it said, The Appian Way. Well, you know what that brings, a flood of memories. We've all talked about the Appian Way. Those of you that have studied Latin in high school, the Appian, here I was on it. When I saw the sign, the Appian Way, my mind began to think of something that took place on the Appian Way, according to tradition. That was with the big fisherman himself. Remember, the story is told in tradition. It's not in scripture, but about Peter, that he was in Rome, and Nero, you know, had set fire to Rome. And I saw the tower where Nero was supposedly up on the roof of that tower, and he was fiddling while Rome burned, and he blamed it on the Christians. And the apostle Peter was told by his friends to flee the city of Rome because they were persecuting them and putting them to death, this big fisherman. And he started down the Appian Way, and I thought of him that day, old apostle Peter, the old fisherman from up Galloway going down the Appian Way at night, fleeing the city and fleeing persecution. The story is told that as he was walking down, suddenly there was somebody coming towards Rome, and he at first couldn't distinguish the features, but as the person came closer, Peter looked at him, and he suddenly recognized him, and it was his Lord. And when Jesus came and passed him, Peter supposed and looked at him, he says, Quo vadis, Domine, whither goest thou, Master? And then Jesus looked at Peter, and he said, I'm going to Rome to be crucified again. And then the old horseman himself, the big fisherman, he turned around, he came back the Appian Way, and he went into Rome, and when they were ready to kill him, he said, My Lord was crucified with his head up, but he said, I'm not worthy to die that way. You crucify me with my head down. The tradition says then that Peter, the big fisherman from up Galilee Way, he was crucified with his feet up in the air and his head down because he was the one that had told the Christians of his day, go and walk in his ways. Yes, the big fisherman, he, he proved it with his life. That the thrill of our life ought to be this. Surely it's uncalled for, it's unjustified, it's undeserved. But the thrill of being a Christian ought to be this, that Christ would count you and me worthy, that we might suffer for him, that we might have within our own souls the assurance that his fellowship is with us and that he is our Christ. We beautifully say it, don't we, in the song, my God and I go in the field together. We walk and talk as good friends should and do. We clasp our hands, our voices ring with laughter. My God and I walk through the meadows, you. That's the great glorious feeling that we have when we are in fellowship with him. Oh, my God and I, oh, yes. This world will pass, and with it common trifles. But, oh, God and I go on unendingly. With his head down and his feet up from the cross, the big fisherman from up Galilee Way says to you and me this morning, Follow in his steps. Follow his steps. Amen. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keeping unites your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.